Hello, thank you for taking the time to listen to this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman and this week we return to previewing our inaugural lectures. Next up is Lizzie Osler, Professor of Chemical Biology and her lecture, Not Age by Time, will discuss how close we are to alleviating and preventing old age degenerative diseases. It's on the 20th of March at the Huxley Lecture Theatre from 6.30. Details of how to book are in this podcast description. I caught up with Lizzie to talk about her lecture and work here at the university. My role within the university is to do both teaching and research. My teaching is primarily in analytical chemistry and I teach undergraduates as well as postgraduates uh, how to measure things, how to see if see what we've got in the beaker to see what that is. My research is actually surprisingly closely allied to that because I'm interested in the chemistry of ageing. And what we want to do um, with our work is to prevent the degenerative diseases that occur with old age in people. We're a little way along the process with this and building on the research that's going on globally, we're really excited about our capacity to rejuvenate cells that are in old people that are causing some of these diseases. And you're sort of leading the way the universities are leading the way in, in, in that as well. But your, your open lecture is titled Not Aged by Time. Can you tell us about what you're going to be talking about? So because I'm one of the first professors to be appointed through the new dual track route, which is both for education and research, I was trying to find something that brought everything together. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's this genuine concept of what do you leave behind you at the end of the day? What I would like to say is um, my legacy in education is about asking questions and saying, why do we do that? We're taking a very cynical approach. Um, And you'll see the picture I've selected is of the first cynic. We've done exactly the same thing with the research. There are very few chemists working in the ageing area. And I was coming into this field and saying, why are we doing this? Why Why have we selected that technique? What's that for? And this new approach has allowed me both in my educational work and my research work to take forward new paths that haven't been trodden before. It's clearly a fascinating subject. And before we talk about the more extreme side of this, um, in terms of striving for immortality, mm-hmm. um, um, how far has research gone in terms of helping people to live healthier lives and therefore live longer? So today I think we're on the cusp of a real breakthrough. The demonstration that senescent cells probably underlie most of the degenerative pathology seen in older people um, by Baker and and colleagues has uh, opened up a whole new area. Now we've been working on cell senescence for over 20 years in this university. My contribution is towards the chemistry and what we found is we've got some compounds that can rejuvenate senescent cells and we hope this will allow us to produce new medicines that will reduce the pathology of older age. We're talking here about the headline-grabbing figure. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I was talking about drinking red wine, the cells that <laughs> was in red wine and chocolate. But it has to be an extreme quantity to, be able to do that, and therefore it's not going to be a great benefit to someone's body. So sadly, unfortunately, yes, you would have to drink an awful lot of litres of red wine to get the doses needed of the compounds that we're, we're basing our work on. However, that's the beauty of chemistry. We can take natural products that have been produced and we've tested and we can redesign them and we can redesign them so that they're more effective, that they get into the body more easily and that we can reduce any side effects. And that's the work we're currently doing is making sure that we've got the absolute best compound that has all the positive features and none of the negative features 
and therefore we hope that you know 90 will be the new 70 and 70 will be the new 40 yeah i mean you say say um on on the cusp how close exactly are you so um the work we've been doing is that so far in cells the work we're basing this on is um has been done in animals but has not yet fully been translated to humans but every week now we're seeing papers coming out in nature and science where people are trying new things and we're right at that forefront of moving from the cellular assays to um the next stage so so what are the 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 primary reasons for health deteriorating in in older people So as you age, you have to undergo cell division in order to repair and grow. As that happens, we've got a, there's a barrier that stops your cells automatically going cancerous and dividing in an unlimited way. That's what cell senescence is. It's unfortunate that it's a barrier that has an effect in older age and therefore has not been selected out. And this is, this is the issue. So these cells, they don't just die, they hang around. They completely re-gear what they're doing and they turn into this inflammatory, nasty thing. They're trying to do this to get cleared by your immune system. But as you get older, your immune system's also getting older. So it stops managing to clear them as effectively. And so what you find is you get all of these inflammatory processes, arthritis, cardiovascular disease, um, vascular dementia, all of these changes we associate with old people, even grey hair and wrinkles, are associated with senescent cell effects and the fact that they're hanging around in the body. The work in the mice that Baker did shows that if you get rid of those senescent cells, you get rid of pretty much every age-related pathology measured so far. If this all comes through, it'd be, it's just going to be absolutely huge, though, isn't it? Yeah, we're very excited. And, and yeah, we're obviously, we're moving forward, um, trying to get this off the ground. We've got competitors from Google and Amazon. Really big companies are coming forward now. We're right on the cusp. We want to be there with the University of Brighton leading the way. Yeah, I mean, clearly, if the, the more money and time is put into this, the better, because it makes sense to ease the pressure on, on the NHS, find ways to stop deteriorating health, ease the burden. So there's, there's kind of an urgency to it as well. Yeah, well, the, the basic calculations show that the amount saved if we could just take five years of ill health out of people's lives would be enough to provide water for the entire planet for 10 years. You know, it's massive amounts we are spending on making old people who are ill really not very much better, and it's very palliative. We want to move to a point where literally when you're 70, you look like the current 40-year-old and you're able to get up run on your wheel as the mice do but perhaps that means walking to the shops instead of having to get on a scooter probably means having to work a a lot longer as well there's always the possibility however what we're aiming for is compression of morbidity so rather than spending 70 years functional and then 20 years really sick what we would like to see is that people are spending very very few years sick at the end of their lifespans that compassion and morbidity means that you get to enjoy your retirement rather than having to spend your whole retirement ill. I mean, so you're saying like hopefully 90 become the new, the new 70. So, I mean, what sort of life expectancy then are we, are we looking at? At the moment, we don't have a real sense about whether the maximum lifespan can be increased much beyond 120. The question is out on that. Most people seem to think that it, as life stands with normal technology not downloading ourselves into computers etc 
120 is probably about it because the, there's no indication at the moment that's risen. That could all change in 10 years' time, of course. Yeah, I mean, this fascination and quest for immortality has always been a fascination for many, dream for some, maybe not so much for others. Maybe a lot of people didn't, wouldn't want to live for hundreds of years. What's the potential for this? How long could it really go on for? So I think there's an awful lot talked about immor- or immortality. Immortality, in real terms, is an awfully long time, and it's very difficult to say whether you'd even be the same person. You know, at 40, are you the same person you were at 20? So conceptually, actually, immortality is a really difficult one to discuss. In terms of logistics, you know, right now, what we're interested in is not being ill, and nobody wants to be 150 and sick. You know, we all would like to get to maybe 90 and be healthy and then just maybe one day not wake up. Um, where where did your interest in this stem from? What sort of captured your imagination? So when I first came to the University of Brighton, uh, there were five of us in a little office together and um, there's a gentleman there called Professor Farragher who at the time was a postdoc alongside me, and he was also working, he was working on ageing. And he was talking on the phone about cell senescence, day in, day out. And so one day I said to him, what on earth is this thing that you've been doing? Because I was a chemist working on a completely different biological problem, and I was interested in biological problems. I left Bristol because I wanted to work on using my chemistry rather than just making compounds and put them in the fridge. So I came to Brighton for that reason. And... Having got talking to him, we did eventually get married um, and then went on to do an awful lot of collaboration together because ageing is a fantastic problem for a chemist and also a really important one because it's a global health problem. So you can use your science to actually make people's lives better. Why would you not want to do that? Absolutely. Um, we talked a lot about your research when it comes to teaching. Um, how would you describe your, your style, your approach so um, I think the, the, the way I describe it to the undergraduates is I like to teach them the tools in the first year and then ask them to apply the tools in the second year. And then in their, their third and final years, depending on the third or fourth years, they get to work on something that doesn't work. And the whole point of this really is such that the students understand that they are becoming researchers even if they don't stay in science, it doesn't matter if they don't stay in science, that questioning approach and that evidence-based use of tools to determine, and it doesn't really matter whether you know, whether A-levels are getting easier or harder or whether we've got lead in our water, the approach I'm teaching them is to question whether what they think they're measuring is what they're actually measuring, whether it means what they think it means, and whether what's in the published literature means what the authors think it means. And we start them on day one with literature, and I work them through, and by the second year, they're criticising the mainstream peer-reviewed research literature. I think that's one of the huge strengths of our chemistry degree. You know, that's, that's the approach we're trying to take. They're gaining confidence, and then in the final year, they get to use all of those skills in their own way, in their own research project, working with our teams. And that includes seven fantastic students I've got this year doing my research project on the compounds that we're putting forward towards ageing. Mm. I mean, you talked about earlier on about that sort of cynical approach. You're sort of creating new ways of thinking that may lead to discoveries of their own. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the main approach. To my sense, 
there's no point in being an academic if you don't ask why. And the why is the most important thing. It doesn't matter whether you're doing research, whether you're doing teaching, whether you're designing a new curriculum, or whether you're doing validation, of which I've done an awful lot for the university. All of it has to be about why are we doing that? And particularly in the current environment with you know the sector as it's changing, the important thing is to say, why are we doing this? If we don't know why we're doing it, let's stop and rethink and find a better way. Because you're that's the, your way of, of, of teaching um s- students obviously would be maybe challenging what you might say as well do you find that you learn a lot from them and how does that actually then have an impact into your research you said you've got students that are working on your project at the moment as well yeah I mean I, I love working with the students because every year I in second year I set them a consultancy report where they go off and investigate what I think might be the next interesting compounds but these are often sold um, on very dodgy websites as sort of herbal medicines and so on. They have to learn during that assessment to di- dissect the, the wool from the chaff. The nice thing about that is they read the literature and they come to me with fresh eyes. Now, they may not have fully understood it and we can have a conversation, but the conversation will bring something new to what I'm thinking about, whether it's because I need to think a better way to explain to them what we're doing or whether it's because they've found a genuine insight that I hadn't seen because it's just a new angle on things. Mm. And, and when one of your own students does that, the latter, when it gives you a different insight, that must be, I guess you kind of have like quite a proud moment. Yeah, there's always been, the, there's a the lovely thing if you're ever doing any kind of teaching where you get that ah moment where you connect on something and it doesn't really matter who's instigated that, whether it's, it's their ideas or your ideas. If the two of you connect on something, that's a really nice feeling. Mm. How long have you been at the university? I've been here since 97. I arrived straight out of my PhD. Right, so um, very well placed to answer this question then. What do you think the university as an institution does best? It's very, very diverse. I think the thing for me is, is working here rather than, say, one of the mainstream or the Russell Group institutions as a chemist is that I've got 30 people down the corridor who want to take my compounds and try them on their model system to see if they do something useful. At Bristol, I put them in the fridge. And that's the big thing for me here. I like to think that the environment within our school is a bit like the scripts, perhaps on not quite the same funding level. Mm. We'll put the inaugural lecture details in the in the podcast description so you can sign up and, and get um, free tickets open to the public and then come and hear more um, about your research. We end every podcast with some quickfire questions away from uh, away from your university work. Uh, so, first up, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? I think, to be honest, the favourite place in Sussex is my living room, because at the end of the day, when you've been running around and doing all these things, I like nothing better than to sit down and digest and try and come to some conclusion about the progress I've made in the day. Mm in comfort at home looking out at the sky if you to describe your your perfect weekend would it be would it be quite similar yeah it, it varies um i mean the academic life is so varied i've had some fantastic weekends um traveling all over the world meeting colleagues talking about aging doing amazing new things 
this weekend I had just had a fantastic weekend going with my son to Nottingham where he, he won a first aiding competition for St John and you know, that was amazing as well and we were also able to catch up with our colleagues in the north so having that family all over the world means you can have an amazing weekend almost anywhere yeah and um, what are you currently reading watching and or listening to rather tragically i'm i'm somewhat reading about myself there's a new book out by sue armstrong called borrowed time um and that's about the current state of play in aging and i highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in the work we've been doing because she really captures the personalities and the work of the people who are doing the work just now and I think it will be a seminal book in the future because this is such a tipping point. Mm. Um, and if you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be? Oh, I find this one really difficult um, because there are there are so many you could choose from. I think actually, to be honest, the thing is the homely thing is I'd really like just to have time to sit down and have dinner in peace with my family and get three of them round the table for once. <laughs> Thanks to Lizzie for her time. Details about her lecture again then, 20th of March in the Huxley Lecture Theatre. You can book your tickets by clicking the links in the podcast description. It should be a fascinating evening. Next week, we'll conclude our inaugural lecture previews by speaking to Professor Tony Hilton, head of the Brighton Business School. If you're not already, you can listen to our podcast and previous episodes through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search University of Brighton. You can also like and subscribe. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week.